0: Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. I am so excited for today's interview. It's been a long time coming. So as you know, I am a huge fan of organic gardening methods. We've talked a lot about that over the years. We've had on different guests. I've shared with you some of my techniques, you know, trying to keep the chemicals out of the garden, trying to grow food in a way that's good for me and the plants and the soil. And it works together in just a beautiful synergy most of the time. But maybe one of the aspects that we don't talk about enough in this world of, you know, romantic organic gardening is some of the struggles that come when we garden outside of this idea of the industrial gardening complex, if you will. And so I wanted to hit some of those issues today, talk through some solutions, give you guys some ideas. And I have the very best guest I can imagine on to discuss this with me for this episode. I'd like to welcome Joe Lample. You might know him as Joe Gardner. He is the host and executive producer of the PBS show Growing a Greener World. He's also been on NBC Today, ABC's Good Morning America, The Weather Channel. He's basically all over the place. And he also has a really popular gardening podcast. And so, Joe, welcome. I cannot wait to hear what you have to share with us today.
1: Hey, Jill. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and I'm, I'm all yours. I'm just looking forward to this conversation.
0: Me too. Yes. Yeah. So as I was going through your website a little bit and your podcast, you have so much gardening content. I know you've been doing this forever. I mean, how long exactly have you been chasing this world of organic gardening?
1: Well, you know, coming out of school, I really started with it part-time because I ended up with a suit job, full, you know, a full-time suit job and i thought what am i doing but it was paying the bills while i was looking for that you know full time horticultural revenue stream and that that didn't happen until 2002 which sounds like a very long time ago because it was but there was some time before that where i was still doing my thing earning a living but i knew at some point when the opportunity presented itself i would leave the suit behind and get rid of the tie and wear my yes. jeans and t-shirts and that's what i've been doing now for i guess coming up on 3 decades thanks to my first show on H on DIY network when I was hosted picked to host a show called Fresh from the Garden so that really launched my opportunity with a, a large public platform to build my audience quickly and and create the brand Joe gardener and then start educating people with what I knew and and how I wanted was hoping other people would start thinking in terms of more environmentally responsible organically minded not only organic gardening but just Stewardship in general, environmental stewardship in general. So my ethos is really kind of meshed together between gardening in a kinder, gentler way, while also being mindful of your environment as well, because it's all connected. And there's a lot of us out there. So I I just wanted to kind of get the word out. Just one last thing. You know, when I when I started doing that, and especially when I created Growing a Greener World, the show you mentioned a minute ago, which is now you know twelve seasons in. Those shows, that show, a show like that, didn't exist, and that was featuring people, other people that were doing good things through organic gardening, and their stories needed to be told. told. So, so we could see people all over the country successfully gardening and growing, and being environmental stewards, and being successful at it, showing that it wasn't complicated. Trying to take the the fear factor out of it, and let people see it's accessible and doable, and 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 you can be, like I said, you could be successful.
0: Yeah. It's so needed and so important. Yeah. I love what you said just about everything being connected. And I think as I've kind of grown in my own homesteading and gardening journey, you know, you start off as a beginner and you you start figuring things out and then all the pieces start to kind of mesh together. I think that phrase, everything is connected, has been yeah. my mantra for the last, um, I mean, I knew it before, but I'm like really digging deep into that now and it's really informed how I'm doing everything on my home. said it started to shift mm-hmm. my perspective of so many things and just being more mindful. I think it's, it's such a good place to be in and, and such an important thing to consider as we you, grow food ourselves.
1: And you feel good about it too. You know, when you're out there doing it, you're, you're growing healthy, organic food to share with your family and yourself and your friends, and you don't have any of these nasty inputs. I mean, that's a good feeling. And you also know that you haven't done any harm to the pollinators or the birds or the wildlife around you can sleep well at night knowing that you, you've done your part in that.
0: Yes, totally. Yeah. It changes the dynamic for sure that it goes from this idea of only taking, you know, taking mm. the harvest, but also giving back. I think it, it just is a compl- It's it's a small shift, but it's actually, you know, it's a big shift ultimately. And That's it's, a- it's definitely made me enjoy it more.
1: I love that point that you just made. You know, it isn't, it isn't just about taking. In fact, for me, it's about, Whatever you do, making what you do better than how you found it, you know, improving everything you go, especially the planet, the earth, our our little ground under our feet, wherever that is that we have some domain, we want to improve that. And I love that. Yes. Yes, totally.
0: How have you seen the organic gardening movement change
1: over the years? I'm just curious. That's a great question. And having been involved with it over a long, you know, pretty long time now, when I started sort of preaching my message, you know, I wasn't the first to talk about organic gardening. That we can give credit to the Rodales here in the states, going back to the yes. '40s and and actually beyond over in Europe. But as as we have more of a front facing profile publicly, where we can get the word out to the masses, when I started doing that, you know, I think the norm was still with a bit of an older generation who maybe had grown up watching what their parents and grandparents did, and that was really just you know, synthetic fertilizers. You know, what's the quick fix? Yes. What's the most the least expensive? quickest way to get the results that we're after without thinking of the ripple effect or the unintended consequences. And so what I was trying to do is help people understand that you can be successful, it is not hard, but you can eliminate a lot of those the ripple effect of what happens when we're not paying attention to that. You know, when we put down a synthetic fertilizer or a pesticide, you know, we may get the results that we're looking for, but we we have no idea what's happening downstream. For example, one of my podcasts, I interviewed Dr. Stephen Kress with the Audubon Society, and, and we were just talking, and I had this curious I had a question. It was just out of curiosity, and I said, Dr. Kress, do you have any ideas? are there any stats of the Audubon Society related to how many backyard bird deaths are related to their, the, those birds eating insects that were killed by a synthetic pesticide?
0: Hmm. And Actually,
1: he did have some numbers, and he said, really, I'm going to give you a number that you could add another zero to. But this is a conservative number, and we estimate it's 7 million, but add another zero if you'd oh like gosh. it, you wouldn't be off. Birds die each year just eating insects because, you know, that's their number one diet. But they're eating them that have been tainted with pesticides. So just knowing that right there, I mean, if that's not enough for most people, I don't know what is, but that's just yeah. one example of many.
0: Yeah, Yeah. And it's that that's that connected piece when we just we we just don't we don't know. We don't know sometimes. And I think most people come into it innocently. They're just trying to grow tomatoes without holes in them. Right. And they're not they're not understanding. And we've been kind of indoctrinated that the fix is just a chemical. Just go buy the fix. Corporations have everything we need. Just go buy it and you'll fix it. And it's just so easy to miss all those
1: interconnected pieces.
0: But they have a really big impact. They add up.
1: They do. And another great thing you just said. They don't know what they don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So You know, if our sphere of influence or the advertising, you know, sucks us in because it seems like, you know, they've greenwashed it to the point that, oh, yeah, that 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 works. That sounds good. I can do that. But the whole story isn't being told. And that's why people like you and me and others come into play to help really educate and tell the truth and shine the light on on the options, good and bad, even with organic. I mean, just like snake venom is organic, but you wouldn't want to drink it. Right. So you got to know that, too. But I believe in just edu- honest education, and and hopefully people are smart enough to to do their own homework and come up with the right conclusion, and hopefully that airs on the side of organic.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think education is so key. You know, I love—I've said it many times—I have a love-hate relationship with the internet. There are pieces I don't like. I don't like how it's addictive. I don't like some of the things that are on there and its tendency to suck us in. But like the homesteading movement wouldn't have grown the way it it has yeah. without the internet. And I'm sure the organic gardening movement, there's awarenesses that have come to place thanks to these platforms. So I'm thankful for it. Also, you know, we have to keep it in balance, but the education is so important.
1: And to that point though, you also have to have your filter. Like we don't know, what we don't know. So that person that's seeking information and they go online and they see this post, that's probably a clickbait post because they have a great, you know, tagline or lead in and you click on it. And in all due respect, many a lot of the information that's online i mean because we all know anybody can post anything anytime anywhere Yes. a lot of it gardening related homestead related is written by and this is what i want to say in all due respect freelance writers who do their homework and everything but honestly let's face it they're making a living being hired to write on subject x y or z so yes they may not have ever done X, Y, or Z themselves. they they're So they're relying on information that may or may not be accurate. So that's my real beef is you've got to somehow hit your wagon to those people that you know, like, and trust who have a great track record, haven't screwed up in the past. Clearly they've got authority in that space and you can yes. feel good about that or always seek out an EDU site, you know, an, an academic site, but please, <laughs> i am on my soapbox for just a second. Please put those filters on because not everything you read on the internet is true.
0: (laughs) Amen to that. Right. We we can't say that enough. (laughs) Right. Can't say that enough. Yeah. And I've even noticed, you know, now we have the whole AI consideration with, you know, places like ChatGPT, which you have content creators now using those. And what I find, like you said, there's like the freelance writers who are doing their best, but they're just kind of parroting information. They haven't done it. And now we have ChatGPT and those engines just taking basically a smattering of freelance content they found on Google and then smashing it together. So you just have this weak content with no personal experience. And it's just, it's not helpful. And You can see it when you Google something often, you know, the first however many results, like this is saying things without saying anything. Like there is actual (laughs) no meat in this content. So I think it's good though, because it's opening up an opportunity for people with actual experience, people like you who have been there, done that. You have the the battle scars to show for it, and I think your information becomes even more valuable because it's real.
1: It's so funny you just said that word because as you were saying that, I was thinking as AI was becoming more and more of a discussion point in recent months, and you know you can easily type, have it create anything related to anything, so yeah. you can have all that AI gardening related content. But I wanted to think, you know, my gosh, how am I going to counter this? So I, I my play on those letters is we, they may be AI, but we're RI, real intelligence. And you just use the word. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, RI. RI, baby. I
0: I like (laughs) it. There you go. You better trademark that. (laughs) It's good. Oh my goodness. Okay. So good. Let's, let's get into some of these problems that organic gardeners might face. And I think you kind of mentioned a really good one right off the bat a minute ago, synthetic fertilizers, you know, Let's say you have a soil test done or maybe you just have a hunch that you're low in nitrogen or you're low in certain Mm -hmm. components in your soil. The industrial gardening fix would be go to the garden store and get a bag of the synthetic fertilizer. But if we're organic gardening, how can we reframe that and come at it from a more holistic angle?
1: Yeah, whether it's organic or not. Fertilizer is just like perceived as, as this magic elixir and we need to add it to our soil. And that's not true. Fertilizer really should be there to supplement what's missing, not to just add it because we think more is better. In fact, when we add fertilizer, organic or otherwise, we can actually create toxic levels of certain things, such as phosphorus, the middle number, which doesn't move through the soil very fast at all. So if we continue to add 10-10-10, which is a standard synthetic, you know, it sounds good, a good balanced fertilizer, 10-10-10, That ratio is way too high in the in the amount of phosphorus and potassium that's being delivered in concert with that same amount of nitrogen. You know, nitrogen is the nutrient whether it's, you know, period. Chemically, organic nitrogen and synthetically produced nitrogen are exactly the same. The plant does not know the difference. But the concentration levels are typically so much higher in synthetically created fertilizer that we're creating these toxic conditions and in excess, not only does it adversely impact your plants, but it it harms the biodiversity in your plant, all the living organisms that are there because of the buildup is just toxic to them too. So what we can do to answer your question is first of all get that proverbial soil test, not not necessarily to find out, you know, what you need to add to know what's missing, you know, just and just supplement yes. the parts that are missing because most people don't understand that if you focus on just building soil with compost and nice organic inputs, the soil pretty much is going to be at the level it needs to be. And when we go and add to that, we're just throwing it off. So moderation for sure. Do the soil test and don't blanketly add stuff just because you think that's going to help. Only add when you know you're deficient in that particular nutrient.
0: Yes. I, I love that perspective. I had a interview um, a couple months ago with Redmond Ag. They've been promoting a home soil test. This is really easy to use. And I had one of their soil guys on and I so appreciated his perspective because he's like, yeah, I get this soil test. But he's like, please don't use it as like this prescriptive. You know, I'm two point flow in sulfur. So now I have to go get sulfur. He's like, think about whole foods for your soil. He's like, whole mm-hmm. food, whole food, whole food. And I'm like, thank you. I I just, I so respect the integrity of you saying that because I know you could sell all those little additives, but they're not, you know, they're looking at that bigger picture. And so often, like you said, compost fixes it or not fixes, maybe it's the wrong word, but compost can bring things back into balance. Just those natural additives.
1: And Jill, to that point, I, you know, I make a lot of compost and I add it to my beds twice a year. It's just a top dressing of a one to two inches across the surface. Coming into my summer crops, in, so like in spring, and then after I pull summer out and get ready for fall, I have empty beds, so I top dress again. Sometimes I don't get it both times a year, but at least once a year. But I got to tell you, I don't have to supplement fertilizing my beds at all. And in my proof of that, in absence of a soil test, I don't need it because, I mean, I, don't get, hear me out on this. I think soil tests are important for information but the proof is going to be in your plant's performance. And if I haven't added any synthetic or organic fertilizer per se, but my plants are just blowing out exactly how you want them to glow. And And your garden is disease resistant and pest resistant. It's a healthy, biodiverse environment because you've really focused your energy on creating that environment through healthy soil via compost. And so that alone for me, has allowed me to have thriving plants and abundant harvest, low in pest and disease pressure. And I really do attribute it to mostly the soil.
0: Yeah. Soil is everything. Yeah. 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 So good. Okay. So some organic fertilizer tips. Now let's kind of shift into, I think one of at least my biggest challenges as an organic gardener, and I think this probably applies to most folks. The pests, the bugs, yeah, the insects. You know, again, this is one of those where people see bugs on their plants and the accepted path is to run to the garden store and get all of the pesticides and just go like scorched earth on the garden. So how can we avoid that? And what are some alternatives? I mean, we could get into also some of the common bugs in particular, because I know there's different strategies for different right. insects. But yeah, kind of give me your overarching philosophy on that maybe to
1: start. Okay. I, I kind of had this philosophy when, when my friend, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, who is a really good entomologist, she travels the world advising greenhouse growers and farmers and gardeners in Mass about biological control. But in a podcast that I had with her years ago, this is something she told me, I will never forget it. And I say it often to myself and to others, is that she asked me, D- if you are said- if you want to make your pest problem worse, spray pesticides. And I'm like, mm. okay, that's heavy. And then I had her explain it. And she said, well, here's the thing. Very few organic or synthetic pesticides, I can't think of any synthetic ones, are, are narrowly focused, as in not broad spectrum, not, you know. In other another words, better said, is that most of what we spray in our gardens, organic or otherwise, to kill pests, are not selective. Broad spectrum. So yeah. they're going to hit or kill anything that it hits. Meaning your lady beetles, your lace wings, your assassin bugs, all the good guys out there doing some of that pest control for you are getting killed as well. But here's yes. the rub if that wasn't enough. Because the beneficials haven't developed a tolerance or adapted as rapidly to recovery from these pesticides, guess who shows up in the recovery phase first? The bad guys without yeah. any threat because the good guys haven't recovered yet. And so now the bad guys, when they had some beneficial insects out there taking them out, now there isn't any of that threat. So, so they can just do what they want without any fear of getting eaten or whatever, not that they're afraid. But the point is when you wipe out your beneficials because you're taking matters into your own hands, you've really created the, your major problem worse. So that's the first thing. And I hope everybody, no one ever forgets that. Keep that in mind anytime you're applying anything. And I'm talking about organic or synthetic. Now, fortunately, there are some organic controls like biological controls, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, and some other things that are are narrowly focused. Like if you have a caterpillar or a worm problem on your plants, BT, spray or powder, is really a good thing. And it's narrowly focused and it's safe for humans, pets, anything. I mean, it's just amazing and i even rarely use that okay but my philosophy and focus is to build again that healthy thriving garden starting with good soil and then allowing with patience the opportunity for the beneficials to come in so when your plants are healthier first of all they're less attractive to the bit of, to the pest insects because it's not low hanging fruit it's not easy pickings for them the 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 plant leaves are more robust and tougher so they're not more as palatable potentially as maybe pest ridden, I'm sorry, weaker plants. And, and then adding, you know, pollinating flowers, you know, just drawing in beneficial to help do that pest control for you by focusing on not what can I put on my garden, but how do I make my garden healthier? How do I make my Mm -hmm. plants healthier? How do I draw in more beneficial and predatory insects? And you do that with a diverse garden. Don't plant You know, your entire garden with tomatoes, as much as you may love tomatoes, because that's a monoculture. And they're, I mean, you know, a lot of pests are going to come in, but that diversity is going to attract a lot of beneficials and some pests. And that's okay because the beneficials, if there aren't anything for them to eat, then you know, that's not good either. So it's okay if the, if the pests come in, if you've got the beneficials, they need that food too, but they're also going to keep them in check. Lastly, you just need to have some level of tolerance. So it's, you know, don't freak out just because you see some pest damage plants for example leafy crops can handle 35 percent damage to their foliage before there's even a dent to their productivity and and when we understand that it's like oh that takes a little bit of the pressure off of us to feel like we've got to be out there every day picking everything we see or finding yeah. some benign product that we can use so patience tolerance and focusing on building overall soil health is going to go a long way for pest control
0: yeah I think that, I mean, it's simple, but I think the reason it's so hard for people to embrace that is because it's not the quick fix. We love, in our culture, we love our quick fixes and our just add this one ingredient and off we go. And it's not that. It's Gardening is such that holistic mindset and it's slow and it's building all these different systems together. But man, it can work when it when it comes together.
1: All, you, you just add great punctuation points to what I'm talking about. But the quick fix is the downfall really to a truly biodiverse garden because a quick fix yeah. isn't how nature would do it. And I always try to put myself in kind of that question, what would nature do sort of, you know, it's like, nature doesn't have a quick fix, but it has the systems in place through diversity and the insects that are going to take out the bad guys. If you, again, it comes back to patience and threshold of tolerance, Mm -hmm. but if you do that and we can let go of that quick fix, we're going to have, we're going to have a long-term solution. The quick fix to me, talking about the junk food, whole foods scenario, Yes, a, a quick fix is eating junk food to satisfy your hunger pangs. You, okay, fine. It, that popcorn—I mean, that popcorn is not so bad. But the chips and the soda taste good, yeah. and I'm not hungry anymore for a few minutes. But then I am, and in the meantime, I added all these calories and carbs and all these things that my body really doesn't want. And now I've got—I'm hungry again, and and I don't want to. Your body—you're not doing your body any favors with a quick fix. Versus the whole foods, you're creating that, solving that hunger pang longer term and your body's yeah. getting nutrition in the process and overall you're you're better off so take that same analogy and, and apply it to uh, how you deal with your past
0: what are we left behind in our race towards progress that's the question that i set out to answer in my latest book old-fashioned on purpose it's no secret to people like you and i that something is rippling through humanity at the moment more and more people are feeling pulled and called to cast aside the baggage of modern life in favor of something more meaningful. To me, an old-fashioned, on-purpose life is an awakening. It's a remembering. It's a returning to what matters. And it's available to everyone, whether you have a homestead or not. So the book isn't out yet. It's going to hit shelves on September 26th. But... If you pre-order right now, I've put together a kind of outrageous package of bonuses. There's a never-before-seen sourdough ebook, there's home dairy guides, there's printable wall art, uh, a virtual meet-and-greet, all kinds of stuff. And you can get that right away. So if you want to check it out, get all the details, head on over to oldfashionedbook.com. You can see the cover, you can check out the bonuses, and I can't wait for you to hold it in your hands. All right, now back to our episode. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, and I think I think maybe the grocery store has set us up for unrealistic expectations because you know we never see lettuce with a bite in it or a cabbage with a hole in it at the grocery store because they are doused in chemicals and so yeah, there's there's such a fear of nature in many folks in our modern world and I think when you, we have our spinach with a few holes, I mean I understand not wanting to eat it if it's just ridden with bug bites, but a few holes isn't going to hurt you. Wash it, you know, a little bit of lettuce with a few little marks and it isn't going to hurt you. But I think that maybe we're just so used to seeing it pristine that that doesn't feel normal anymore to have a little bit of pest damage on some of the vegetables.
1: Absolutely. The uniformity and the perfection of what we see in our grocery store produce aisles is ridiculous. And I love the concept that came out a few years ago, like ugly tomatoes and the yes and the produce that you could buy in certain stores that maybe was a little bit off in how it looked but there wasn't anything wrong with it you know it just wasn't a perfectly round tomato and we we just need to get over that
0: yes yes okay Okay, so we've talked about kind of that slow fix that whole foods solution to pest problems Mm -hmm. let's say someone is listening today and they're like cool joe But I have no cabbage left because the moths, the little worms, have eaten it down to smithereens. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a horde of aphids in my growing spaces, my greenhouse, whatever, and I can't even harvest a single spinach plant. Like, do you have any help for those folks in those situations who might need immediate assistance this year?
1: Yes. And so, again, it comes down to what... First of all, it comes down... When you see... A bug on your plant, whether it's a beneficial or a pest. No, first of all, whether it is a beneficial or a pest, and don't assume that you're guilty until proven innocent. You know, mm. like like lady beetle larva it doesn't look anything like the adult lady beetle, which they're both no. beneficial, and the lady beetle larva is a f- voracious consumer of aphids. But when you look at this little black and orange alligator on your plants, you go, oh my god! It that's does look be like an pest. alligator. Yes, it does. Yes, it's not. So so I beg everybody to start doing a little homework in their garden. I mean, it's so fascinating. What I love about gardening so much is there's so much to know and you're never going to know it all. So you're always challenged and always interested. No two days are the same, but you're going to have insects in your garden and some are going to be pests. But the other thing I want people to know is of all the bugs in your garden, only 1% are technically pests. The ones that are going to do damage to your plants. So that makes 99% either beneficial or benign. not No mm. damage whatsoever. So first of all, if we're going to give credit to one or the other, it should be innocent until proven guilty, you know, just go assume they're not pests. But to your point, once you identify it as a pest, then you need to understand what are my solutions. And, And a lot of us have heard the term IPM integrated pest management, which is a, an approach to pest management that starts with the most benign controls first, you know, like, like, can I hand pick it off? Can I wash it off? Can I provide a, physical barrier, a row cover over that. And you know if you get past that, then what's the next phase and the next phase and the next thing? And I think step five or so is ultimately, well, we're going to have to use some sort of chemical control. But when we do, we should be looking at what options do we have for that? And are there any biological controls that may be more narrowly focused where they're going to take out aphids or soft-bodied pests such as insecticidal soap or botanical oils but they're not going to harm our bees. You know, there's options yeah, for that.
0: The bees. Yeah.
1: But, mm-hmm. but if we, but, but if we don't know and we go to the, the box store and we look at the shelf and there's like, you know, insect killer and it shows the thing that you want to kill on the label, then you're going to, Oh, that's for me. But again, it's those ripple effect unintended consequences that we need to keep in mind. So there are, there are levels of applications that we can buy in, in, put onto our plans that vary in their reach, their scope. And uh, we should be looking for, we should be doing our homework. I, you know, on my website, and I know there's plenty of places like that, you can, you can find out kind of what those options are. Uh, there's books out there. There's, you know, the information's out there, but again, it requires doing a little bit of homework, but educating yourself t- as to what your options are, depending on what the pest is, is what I would say. And and more often than not, a lot of yeah. times a stiff blast of water goes, goes a long way, you know, but yep. I'll start there.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great, great suggestion. I think just avoiding that broad spectrum, just like, mm-hmm. you know, vaporizing everything is probably a big step for most people. And if they could just start to go a little more targeted, that's going to take them a long ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then just timing, you know, even, even if they have to get to that Top tier, most broad spectrum control, even if they had to get to that. And I can't tell you, I can't even remember or name the last time I ever even thought about that. Cause you know, the mm-hmm. things that you do ahead of that can make those systems work together so that you never get to that point. But even yeah. if you did, for those that are not there yet, know the best time of day for application. For example, you know. Middle of the morning is a terrible time to apply anything because look at all the pollinators that are out. The bees have woken up, the butterflies are out and it's just like do not spray in the middle of the morning or the even midday. If you had to do anything like that, it would be late in the day after everything's kind of retired for the evening. And then you can get out there and do what you need to do. And you know, that's the lesser of two evils. I'm not saying that's the that's good to do. I'm just saying yeah take that into consideration as well. Timing has a lot to do with the impact mm. that you're going to have.
0: Yes, that's a, that's a good point. Easy to miss. Yeah. I know I've been so intrigued by the idea of bringing more beneficials in as I've dealt with different things. And mm-hmm. I had a guest on, I've mentioned this podcast so many times because it was just a great interview, Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture. And he was just talking about, you know, just permaculture principles. And one of the mm-hmm. things he said was like, if you have, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duck deficiency. Or, you know, in in that mindset of looking at the problem as the solution. And I just have been thinking about that so much. And last summer, I think it was last summer, we had, yeah, we had a horrible infestation of aphids in our greenhouse. I've I've never really had aphids here, but they Mm -hmm. got into the greenhouse and just went nuts. And so we brought in uh, some extra ladybugs and then I was keeping the doors open. And every time we'd find ladybugs, we'd kind of take them to the greenhouse. And pretty soon I had stalks with just ladybugs covering all the stalks, And it was so awesome. And I, I sat out there, I told people this and I think it's really weird. Maybe you'll think it's cool. I I've always wanted to see a ladybug eat an aphid. So I sat out there forever oh. until I saw a ladybug and it like was cramming an aphid into its mouth. And it was so cool, but it was fun to see the battle. I know. I'm just like, I'm such a nerd. No one thinks it's cool, but this is amazing. So, it's cool to see nature, you know, work, work itself out.
1: Amazing. It's amazing. It's fascinating. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Aphid nerds unite. So
1: (laughs) yeah. And lacewings. I mean, there's a lot of insects that love to eat aphids. So, you know. Yes. Yeah.
0: Here. Okay. Rabbit trail question. Cause I've, I've seen this on the internet, but as we were talking about some of those sites are sketchy. I have, I have seen on the great Google that. Ants farm aphids, or ants will bring aphids in. Is that true, or is that a old wives' tale?
1: You're, you're saying ants will bring aphids in?
0: Yes, I have seen articles that said that ants actually like manage aphids like cattle. They like the sticky, sweet stuff. Yeah, And I, I have noticed in my greenhouse, mm. when I start to see ants appear, then I have aphids usually following. So I'm like, is this a coincidence? Like, what's going on? Do you have any info on that? Just well,
1: curious. yeah, no, I, I did... I have not seen it in that order. I've seen the ants show up after the aphids are there to, to, to take up the oh. sweet, sugary substance.
0: Okay. And yes. so,
1: yeah, I've heard that term too. But in, in my real life application, in what I notice, it's, it's, I don't notice the ants before I notice the aphids. I notice it in reverse. And, and even then, okay. it's not as though the ants are doing anything to help cut down on the aphid population. They're just, they're no. just opportunistic to the exudates of the aphids.
0: Yes. Okay. Maybe, yeah. I'll have to pay more attention. Like as I had this one bed in my my greenhouse and I had just like the little tiny harmless black ants, I noticed they were really prevalent this spring. And then all of a sudden in that same bed, like a month ago, I was like, there's the aphids. They're in that one bed near the ants. So I'm. But I, it could be a witch came first yeah. chicken or the egg scenario too. Maybe I missed the aphids coming in and ants. It could have been either or. So maybe more research. I will, I will spend more time watching the bugs out in the garden and get back to Do that. (laughs) So, yes. Sitting on a bucket watching the bugs. Good. Yes. Okay, so we talked about fertilizer. We talked about pests. Now I think the other big topic in the world of gardening, and that is weeds. Mm -hmm. And that's something we all talk about as gardeners. And the conventional mindset is you got weeds, you go get herbicides, whether they're in your yard or your sidewalks or whatever. It's a funny story my dad actually, as a child, his career was selling farm chemicals. And so he worked for companies, or he was selling, you know, Monsanto derivatives and all of those mass farm chemicals. And so he has a very much an affinity for those. Whenever we get together at holidays, we have arguments over Roundup. And he's always like, you have weeds in your driveway, use Roundup. And I'm like, I will not, I will not use Roundup. Or he'll be like, spray your, you know, the walkways in your garden, spray them with Roundup. And I'm like, absolutely not. So just kind of funny, but that's you know, a mindset that a lot of folks have. You just go to the garden store, you get the chemical, and your weed problems go away. So yeah. obviously we're not gonna spray our gar- our vegetable gardens with those sorts of chemicals. But what are some of your organic gardening solutions for weeds?
1: I have those. Can I just show you something real quick? I was looking for as you were talking about that. Yes. Have you
0: read this book? I had him on my podcast. He was yeah. so awesome. Chatty, isn't he yes. amazing? He's amazing.
1: God, this book, it was a page turner. I could not, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm just like, it's like a novel about ra- a case yeah. with roundhouse.
0: Yes. Boundaries. Yes.
1: Pretty amazing. Yeah. It makes you makes you totally rethink all those harmless chemicals real quick. It does. Okay. So my number one solution to cutting down on your weed problem, let me also say this. I say, I'm fond of saying weeds are like death taxes. It, how's, how do I say this? There's Two certainties in life, that's the old expression, death and taxes. But I always say there's mm-hmm. three, and I add weeds to that, but my my somebody on my team said actually there's four. It's four certainties in life. Death, taxes, weeds and Mariah Carey songs at Christmas time. So <laughs> There you
0: go. That's a that great good list. Good list. <laughs> so
1: So here's how we deal with weeds. They're going to be there. We can't, you know, they are a fact of life. But I have yes. far fewer weeds and the areas of my lawn and landscape and garden when I add a two inch layer of mulch. Mulch to me yes. is there, there are 10, at least 10 reasons why everybody should be using mulch, natural mulch, and some derivative. And one of the biggest is weed suppression because a lot of the weeds that we have anywhere on our property is because the dormant seeds have been exposed to sunlight. And when that happens, whether we do that through raking or tilling or disturbing the soil, when they see the light of day, they're going to germinate. But when you have a layer of mulch that blocks the light from getting to the surface of the soil, besides preventing runoff and erosion and all these other things, it's blocking the light that the seeds need to germinate. So in my raised bed garden, anytime I post a picture of it on Instagram or whatever, you know, somebody's always going to say, how do you keep those weeds? Why are there no weeds there? You know? And I say, well, there are sometimes. And and you know, when I'm when I don't get out to the garden and weed it a couple times a year, I get a lot of weeds. And then I have to spend yes. two two hours pulling them out by hand, which is what I do, and I don't mind it, especially after a rain. And I pull yeah. them, that's very gratifying. But then the then all you do, the key is to make sure that you've got the mulch down. And then every time you go out into the garden, hopefully it's more often than not. If you see a weed, you just pull it, you bend over and you pull it out and I have a big raised bed garden and a lot of pathways but i I like defy a weed to show itself these days because in spite yeah. of how large I have I like it's the key is staying on top of it so the the job of pulling them all out one time making sure you've got mulch on and then it's just a matter after that of keeping up with it whether it's in the beds mm-hmm. in the pathways whatever now that said, I've got big landscape beds that I can't get to mulching them enough to keep the soil surface covered all the time, and they they have weeds, and it can be overwhelming, so you have to tackle those those areas little by little, like segment out a a section of your bed or say, having a weed for an hour and then stop, so it's not overwhelming you know you you make yeah. progressions and then and then make sure you get your mulch but hand pulling is my favorite thing, but do you what do you use, Jill?
0: I, I'm also a mulch fanatic. I mean, mm-hmm. I think any of my listeners will be like, oh my gosh, she's talking yeah. about mulch. Like,
1: yeah, I just too.
0: I just love it. Like, it was such a game changer. I, and like you said, I still have weeds. And I've also just had to reframe the the tasks. Like, instead of like, oh my gosh, I have more chores and I have to get these garden chores done so I can go recreate or sit on the couch or whatever. It's like, no, I get to go outside I'm feeding my my need for physical activity I'm mm-hmm. getting out in nature I'm touching soil which is good I'm helping my mental health I often use weeding as like a break when I'm sitting in the office too long like I'll go yeah. out and just be outside I'll listen to a podcast or music and so that's really helped where I see it less as like oh my gosh I have to weed and now I like I get to go outside and be in my garden for a while and I don't know right. it's kind of addictive when you get started like it is it's kind of fun I don't know yeah
1: Yep. And especially, like I said, after a rain, you know, when the ground is softer, the roots come out easier and then you hear the sound of the roots being ripped up through the soil. That's always gratifying. Yeah. I like that sound. It's so
0: gratifying. But, yeah. Yeah,
1: And then, and then hand weeding. So if, so, you know, I, I prefer to pull weeds out by hand because I actually like it and it's exercise and it's my Zen time. Like you, I like to just listen to the birds or nature early in the morning, but I have a, I have a couple favorite weeding tools. One in particular, it's just called a scuffle hoe, scuffle hoe or weed winged weeder, which is like sharp on four sides, like a diamond on a long handle with a pistol grip. And mm. it's, yeah, I just sit there and scrape it along the surface of the soil and it's severing the roots on those shallowly rooted weeds. Now, yes. a dandelion or a thistle or something like that, you know, that's probably going to grow back because the tap going to cause it to reemerge. Those are the ones you really need to make sure you're hand pulling. But then you use a soil knife and you get down there deep and you pry it out and you get it all. So yep. understanding that your tools of choice, finding what works best for you, definitely makes it easy. Like having the right tool for the right job makes all the difference in the world.
0: Yes. And I, I, there's definitely something to be said as well for staying on top of it. Because I, I mean, I, I do feel stressed if I have a big patch yeah. where it's out of control and it's been a month since I've been out there. Yeah, that's not, I, I I feel my stress level rising, but if I can just do a little bit a day, sometimes even 10, 15 minutes on my raised mm-hmm. beds, like it, it it's surprisingly it not up. that much if, if I'm on top of it. Yeah.
1: That's what I say. If you could just incrementally, like, like say, I'm going to do two beds today, one bed, five beds, whatever, 10 yep. minutes, 15 minutes, giving uh, parameters around what you're going to do somehow eases the tension or the stress or the overwhelm because you know, you're, that's it. And then you, come back the next time.
0: That's key. That's really
1: key.
0: I agree. What's your favorite mulch material?
1: Shredded leaves, semi-composted shredded leaves. And uh, where I live in Atlanta, I mean, I'm on five acres and I've got lots of trees, but I don't harvest my leaves. I let them fall and let them break down in place. But in the surrounding subdivisions, these HOA subdivisions that are all around me, they got to bag their leaves up because the HOA doesn't let them just leave their leaves around. And so yeah, li- literally, Jill, over the course of three weekends in November, I get in my pickup truck, I post on Nextdoor and Facebook, and I say, hey, if you've got bagged leaves, clean bagged leaves, let me know, and I'll come pick them up. And they're like, wow. And and within a couple hours, I have to cut off the comments because I already know I end up with about 350, 400 of these you know, recyclable bags, oh my gosh. paper bags yeah. full of leaves. And then I have a leaf shredder. And so when I get home, I shred half of them and I dump the other half out on my landscape beds. Because, you know, frankly, one of the things we've learned in recent years about leaves is that a lot of beneficial insects overwinter in those leaves. And so we want to allow Mm -hmm. for that to happen. And so if I'm going around shredding every bag of leaves that I collect, no doubt I'm probably killing, you know, some overwintering insects in there too. Now that said, every bag that was at the curb, whether I picked it up or not, was headed for the landfill. So I diverted 350, 400 bags from the landfill and released half of them into my beds. And then the other half I do shred with a leaf shredder, put it in a mulch pile, and let it break down. And then six months later, I've got the most amazing mulch that I start adding in spring. And then here's the thing. it, It works so great. It's free. It's plentiful and then as it's breaking down over the course of the summer into fall it's improving the soil and we already talked about improving the soil and it's yes. a comp- it's a compost like organic material so i can't think of anything better but straw would be my second choice if you want another option mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yes yes i've done we don't have leaves here yeah because we don't have we have very few trees and then mm-hmm. the trees that we do have we have like a hundred mile an hour winds regularly yeah. so they blow the leaves away yeah. So I, I would love leaves. But yeah, I've used straw. I've used hay. I've uh-huh. used... Actually, grass clippings are my favorite right now because we, yeah. we don't spray our yard with anything. And so right. I only use my own clippings. And we cut it before it gets seed heads. Perfect. And so that's worked pretty well. But yeah, I, it's like you said, it's so brilliant. I'm like, you know, it's putting nutrients back in the soil. It's reducing the weeding. It's helping reduce watering. I'm like, it, it's magic. It's absolute magic. I could just talk about mulch for days.
1: And, and so. you're, you're not buying... Bags of mulch at the box store with all the plastic and all the stuff that that went into that. And who even knows if the mulch you're getting, like the cypress mulch, is it even from a sustainable source? Because a lot of the cypress that's cut down is from wetland areas, and cypress isn't the fastest growing Mm. tree, and it doesn't, it's not a sustainable harvest. And so, you know, again, once it comes down to educating yourself about what you're using on your property and where you're sourcing it from and where is it sourced, there's a lot to learn. And it's to me, it's interesting and it's important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think just the less we can, we have to bring home from the garden store, the better. It just makes life a lot easier. So that actually segues really nicely into my kind of my final big question for you. I want to talk about, you mentioned earlier, unintended consequence. And there's one that I know I've struggled with over the years and a lot of folks have. It's becoming more prevalent. Sometimes it comes in in our mulches. Sometimes it comes in in our compost. And it's this idea of persistent herbicide contamination. I've called it aminopyrrolid contamination. There's all different names for it, but it is very problematic. I have dealt with it a couple times over the years. I actually still have some residue in one of my beds in the greenhouse. I'm still kind of waiting for it to go away. And for those of you listening and you're not familiar, what happens is that these herbicides, you, you, didn't, you didn't spray them, you didn't buy them, but they can come into your garden in the forms of compost or manure or mulches or hay or straw. And it doesn't kill your plants, at least in my experience. It just stunts them. And you'll see the telltale signs, at least in my garden, where the leaves start to get like really twisty. They almost look sickened and gnarled. And you'll be like, what's going on? And so a number of years ago, it set me on this journey to figure it out. But Joe, I know you've dealt with that. Kind of give me the rundown of what you do and how you discovered it. It's such, such a devastating problem.
1: You know, it happens to the best of us, Jill, as you know, and it happened to me. And I even did a blog post on it years ago when it did happen. I called it Killer Compost. It happened to me. And so I chronicled, interesting, let me just tell you a little more of the backstory on it. I had my garden, my raised bed garden where I live now, we've been here 11 years. So my raised bed garden has been here 10 years. And right after I built my raised bed garden, I put in all of this great soil, compost, great topsoil. Other organic material, but I saved about twenty percent of the volume in the bed for our horse manure. We have horses here, and we have this amazing pile of composted manure just waiting to be added to the garden. I have I speak a lot, and for years, even prior to this, I knew about persistent herbicides through I mean, clopyrid and persistent herbicides generally is the is the term I use. Because they don't break down. The molecules are synthetically produced and they're so tight and so durable that it takes about five years or more for those molecules to be deactivated to the point that they're not going to have an impact in your garden. So I knew about this before it ever happened to me. And so I'd tell, I'd warn everybody about it. You know, usually it's in the horse. You know, a lot of us love to use animal waste, horse manure specifically, and Let's face it. The number one food that horses eat typically is hay. Well, how does, how does this persistent herbicide get into the manure? Well, it's because the farmers in their fields don't, you know, if they were to sell hay that had a bunch of broadleaf weeds in it, it would be of lower value. It wouldn't be as clean. It wouldn't be as attractive. And they would, couldn't get as much money for it. Understood. I, I get that. So they spray a product called, in our case, it's Grazon. Grazon. Yes. And the name, the reason it's named that is you know I, I don't remember anyway the reason it's named that is because horses can safely eat the hay, even though it's been sprayed with this this herbicide because grazon or the herbicide in it doesn't break down through the digestive system of the animal and it passes out the back end safely, and the animal was never the worse for wear. However, because that molecule is still intact, the manure that we then let break down and use in our garden still has that same persistent herbicide in it. And so when we put it into our gardens, unbeknownst to us, it's still active. And so some plants are more sensitive than others, like tomatoes and peppers and beans and peas. And it does, I mean, it really, you'll know when you see it, you're like, you'll walk out one day and you'll say, what, what just happened? You know, you've never seen anything like it, as you described. And it's the persistent herbicides every time. And it can even be, speaking of Roundup again, I mean, that can even impact drift in the air, your neighbor's spraying Roundup and the air can carry it onto your plants. And then you notice it on your plants that way too, but that's related, but not. So let's go back to persistent herbicides. So then what do you do? You got some options. You can either replace your soil and depending on how much of your soil you need to replace, that can be overwhelming and you know not doable. Or you wait it out. And in my case, so back to that point, and then I'll take it home from there. We were filming, so I finally filled my beds with that with that manure, even though, remember, I told you that I'd been warning everybody not to do that, yeah, but in the yeah. meantime, i have been looking at my manure pile over the months and thinking, oh, this is looking good. I don't see any signs of anything because I saw sprouts coming out the top, and in my head, I was thinking, oh, that proves that there's no persistent herbicide in there because if there was, there wouldn't be anything green growing out the top of the manure. Where I failed yeah. to make the connection was- what was growing out the top of the manure was not broadleaf weeds. They were grasses. Grass, yeah. And and so the herbicide in the manure was killing off the broadleaf weeds that would have been sprouting, but it's not; doesn't affect grasses. So I forgot to make that association. So when I put it into my garden and then I put my plants in, and we're out here filming one day for my show, and we're looking at everything, and I'm thinking, and I tell my camera guy, I said, I can't believe what I just did. I've got persistent herbicides in my soil from the manure I put in here that I've warned everybody else not to do, and I just did it. And now look at my garden. And he said, he said, this is a quote. He said, "Dude, we can't, we can't show that. We can't talk about that. You're, you're Joe Gardner. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. actually, I need to talk about this because if it happens to me, who knows better? It's going to happen. I mean, every, it's going to happen to a lot of people, but I need to make them aware of it. So we showed it. It's in a show, and see it. But it took me. Four years of turning my soil to the air, watering it a lot. You know, you go on the websites of these companies that make it and it's like, there's warnings. They're not very prominent about if you're gardening, don't use manure, don't use horse manure or hay, including mulch because of the risk. And, And then there's not a lot of hope for how you deactivate it quickly. There's not anything out there. It just takes time. UV light, moisture, heat. And it took me about four years to recover from it.
0: Yeah. And it's it's so devastating and it's so hard. Like you said, like we wanna use the manure, especially when you're doing organic things. Like we have yeah. horses as well. The horses, the horse manure was our issue yeah. also. And it's like so beautiful. I have a, a manure pile out there right now. Yeah. It's broken down. It's gorgeous. I just go out there and I like touch it because I'm like, it looks so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But I, I tested it this year and me. I don't know if you have any other testing options. I just did, I, I planted a bunch of bean seeds in yep. the compost Yep. and I had one seed germinate out of like 20 and I'm yep. like, eh, nope, not using it. So it's yep. still in there. Do you have any other ways to test? Are, people ask me all the time, is there a test you can buy?
1: I don't know. There probably is. I don't know of it, but your, your test is really the simplest thing you can do. It's called a bioassay test, <laughs> but you're just, you know, The way that I would do it, I like your way, but you want to compare too. The way I would do it is get six pots, you know, six pots. Three are going to have purchased soil or good soil that you know has no chance of having Mm -hmm. persistent herbicides in it. So you fill that with that good soil, and then you get three pots with the questionable soil, like the horse manure. And you can even mix it 50-50 or whatever because it only takes about five parts per billion of persistent herbicide to impact your plant. So you don't need a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But anyway, 50/50 will definitely tell you. So 3 yep. 3 containers of the iffy stuff, 3 containers of the good stuff, plant bean seeds in all six. Make sure you keep them separate, do not cross contaminate, and then see what happens over the next 3 weeks. You'll know.
0: Yeah. And if, yeah. if
1: if they all look the same and and that they're good, then you're you're lucky and you can use that horse manure. And one other thing I just want to say, Jill, And that is, I I was a spokesperson for the U.S. Composting Council for a long time, and I'd sit in on those annual meetings, and they kept talking about every year they were having more and more challenges with the the people that would dump their, their salt, you know, the, at the landfills, the stuff that would come in was full of persistent herbicides and the, and the landfill companies had no way of screening to keep it out. So my, the bottom line is it's getting worse and worse and worse because those persistent herbicides are being utilized more and more and more. It's not getting less yeah. and less and less. It's getting more and more and more. So we have to be way more vigilant than we ever were.
0: Yes, it's so disheartening. Do you have any tips? Because people ask me all the time, especially like they might not have horses or they might not have their own source of mulch or compost. They're like, how do I know? Like when I buy it, is there any brands out there if they're if they're buying stuff at the garden store and i don't I don't have a lot of resources. I'm just kind of like I feel like I'm fumbling along doing my own little bioassay test. Do you have any tips for them
1: well i don't i don't I don't know that I've ever seen bagged horse manure, and I think horse manure is where your highest risk of getting persistent herbicides into your garden is so So my alternative for everybody that wants to use a manure product would be cow manure like I know that okay. black black cow brand out of, I think they're all over the country now. I think they're out of Florida, but, but cows typically aren't grazing on hay. They're, they're, they're fed grains and things that just isn't the same thing. And so I've never had an instance that I'm aware of. And I use horse, I use cow manure a lot. Never had an instance with that. So I, I feel like you can be, you you can feel safe in using cow manure from a reputable company like black cow. I know there's others and I don't have any affiliation with them, but I just,
0: Mm -hmm. I've had
1: good success with them. But I'd go with cow manure or chicken manure or goat manure, some small poultry, some small scale livestock animal manure would be a better chance as long as they're not eating hay.
0: Right. Yes. Yes. I've been, we have, my daughter has a few rabbits this year and I've been trying to grab it. So it's ridiculous. I have this giant compost pile and I'm scraping up the rabbit manure. I know you got to because I'm it like, you got to keep it
1: separate. Yeah. That rabbit manure is so. great stuff. Great stuff.
0: Yes, yes. I've been quite I'm like, I don't really want rabbits. She does, but I'm uh, like, we'll just keep them for the manure. That's like enough reason for me to that's, that's, have rabbits.
1: Same so, here, same Priorities. Here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Oh my goodness. So We've covered some amazing ground. We talked about weeds. We talked about pests. We talked about herbicides. Any other common struggles you see with organic gardening that you'd want to share as we wrap up today? You know, our solutions I, rather. Struggles slash solutions.
1: You know, I don't know if people today, you know, are intimidated by organic gardening. Because, you know, the chemicals that we talked about earlier, the products that we can get off the shelf that are unfortunately skewed towards the synthetic, non-organic stuff, they make it so accessible. It's in your face and, and you know, the marketing is all behind it and everything. And so then you start to learn about, well, gosh, maybe I should be trying organic or doing organic. And then, you know, you've got to learn, you've got to educate yourself a little bit. So I would just tell people, don't overcomplicate it. Just take, Take make bite-sized steps. Seek out somebody like Jill or me or whoever that mentor is for you. That's an organic gardener, and just see what they have to say. See what they're writing about, talking about. That, you know, just make them your guide, and then take it one step at a time. It's not harder. It's you're more successful overall. You just it's a different way of thinking. If you've done it if you've done it just all synthetically the first time, but if you've never done either. It's not a different way. It's just the way. And it's not hard. Yes. And focus on the soil. Yeah, Focus on the soil. Yes.
0: And I think so many times when we think something is harder, I've seen that in the kitchen because I also love cooking. Mm -hmm. You know, people have these perceptions that this is hard and this is impossible and you can only do this if you buy it. And I'm like, no, that's just marketing. You've been marketed to very thoroughly genius marketers who have convinced you that you are incapable and this is out of your reach. And it's really not. And I think Mm -hmm. that absolutely applies to so many of the garden
1: aspects as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, this was incredible. This was an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on. Can you give everybody a quick rundown of where to find you? Because I, I know you have so many resources, so much content. You have courses and books. Where is yeah. the best place for folks to start with all that you have to offer?
1: If, if there's one place, it's just JoeGardner.com. That's my brand. Okay. That's my that's my Instagram avatar. It's just it, all of that stuff is Joe Gardner, and I'll just say spell Joe Gardiner. Properly, because mm. there's an extra e. A lot yes. of people just want to drop that e out of gardener and it's Gardener. But anyway, Gardner. you'll find me, and okay. either way you spell Joe Gardner on the online dot com, you'll find us. But that's that that's the hub I would have everybody go to because there we link out to our YouTube and courses and
0: yes, excellent. Yeah, and go check it out, guys. It's good stuff. It's actionable. It's bite size. It's it has good depth. So you'll if you like my content, I know you'll love Joe's content as well. So. Thank you so much again for coming on. I learned a ton. It was fun to chat with another like-minded person. And yeah, this was a great episode. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Jill. Great questions. It was fun to talk to you. And I look forward to doing more of that very soon.
0: Yes, absolutely.